This morning, we're going to continue our series on Advent. Let me just welcome those joining live stream. We're glad that you are with us this morning as well. And we started a, a series last week on Advent called The Backstory. And remember, I, I had mentioned last week, when you talk about Advent, if you haven't grown up with that terminology, that just seems like something high church does, somebody that's kind of got a more formal church setting. If you grew up like in a Bible church or in some other churches, you'd, you'd think Advent was like, no, 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 we don't do it. <laughs> We're not Advent people, you know. But remember, the, the way the dictionary defines Advent is simply this. Advent is the arrival of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. And so when we talk about Advent here, we're celebrating the arrival of a notable person, Jesus Christ, who did a notable thing by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, which created an event that we can look back to and put our faith in to be saved from the penalty of sin and to to possess eternal life, to to possess it. That means not that we get it out there in the future somewhere, that but the moment we believe God says you possess eternal life. And eternal life lasts how long? Forever. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a trick question, but it's, <laughs> it's not. And so if you have something that lasts forever, you can never lose it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to be described as eternal. And so this is what we celebrate when we're looking at Advent, God's solution to man's problem in the person of Jesus Christ. And as it relates to his finished work, this, this morning, this week, we want to look at the birth of the Messiah. We want to kind of in, in conjunction with the candle we lit this morning, the Bethlehem candle, we want to really focus in on two aspects this morning. Not only the, the birth, the arrival of the Messiah, but also the seed, the lineage of the Messiah. We want to look at those two things this morning. You know, Galatians 4.4 puts it perfectly. Uh, and basically, let me give you the, the, the John Clark summary version, and then I'm going to read the Word of God. God knew what he was going to do when he was going to do it. This was not a plan B to God. This was not a plan C to God. God had one plan, and that plan was in his son, and he introduced him at the exact perfect moment in history, and this is what Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And those of you that remember Isaiah 9, 6 from last week, did you hear it there in Galatians 4, 4? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, right? Isaiah 9, 6, what do we have? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and you're going to see continuity throughout the scriptures because God desires to communicate this message in such a way that we can be persuaded and convinced. Everything is put together for us so that you too and, and myself, not only will we be persuaded to put our faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, but that, as Josh mentioned during the worship time, that we recognize our neediness even in our daily life to continue to walk by faith. That's what Romans says is salvation's from faith to faith. You get saved by faith, and then you and I are designed to walk by faith. Not to be delivered from the penalty of sin. That happens at a moment in time. But we're walking by faith so that we might be delivered from the power of sin in our daily life. And that is what's designed to go on. I love the song we just sang, and I'm, I'm going to forget the title, but you know, my one defense do you view your Christian life, and I'm kind of going offline here for a second, 
But do you view your Christian life and your victory over sin as you've got one defense? You've got one savior, you've got one deliverer from the power of sin in your life? Are you trusting in a myriad of things, your Bible reading, your prayer time, your scripture memorization, all good things, by the way, but that's not your one defense. This is what's so great about the Advent story. God is caught up in a person and he wants us caught up in a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished, he is your one defense. He is your one deliver. And these are the things that we are reminded of as we kind of take the time to look at this backstory regarding the birth of the Messiah. You know, last week we considered the first and the foundational prophecy in all of the Bible. We looked at fulfilled prophecy last week and we started all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which is our foundational prophecy where all other prophecies were just simply given to help fill in the details of this one prophecy. So let's go back and, and read it. Because Genesis 3.15 puts us in time and space and context immediately following the worst mistake in human history. The absolute worst. You think you're, you've messed up. You think you've blown it. This was the all-time, this takes the trophy, right? Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with a a penalty of what if they ate? Death. See, sin hasn't changed. Sin always requires the penalty of death. And it was no different in Genesis 3. And so immediately following this huge mistake, God records this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so in summary form, we learned really two things. We could break this down a lot more, but a physical descendant of the woman would be utilized by God to destroy the serpent. And we noticed last week that even in light of the prophecy given in Isaiah 7, 14, that wasn't the first mention that this promised deliverer would be virgin born. In fact, the first mention, and this is why I say God knows what he's doing from beginning to end. He mentions it in Genesis 3.15. You say, how do I know that? Look at the phrase he uses. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Not their seed, not his and her seed, simply her seed. God knew what he was gonna do right then. He knew how he needed to do it. Nothing took God by surprise. And so that's the first thing that we gather in summary form from this first prophecy. And then the second We learned that the serpent was going to harm this seed in some way, shape, fashion, and form, but the physical descendant of the woman would eventually crush the serpent and defeat him in totality. He would deliver a death blow to his head. See, mankind had messed up. God promised to provide the solution. Mankind had blown it completely. God comes right in and says, you know what? I'm going to take care of this for you. And see, religion over the years, has basically pushed God off to the side and says, no, I'll figure out my own solution. Thank you very much. No, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. Thank you very much. I don't need to trust in your solution, God. I got one down the pike. And if this initial solution doesn't work, I'll try another one, and I'll try another one, and I'll try another one. And God wants us to stop working and start trusting in his solution and his alone. This is why Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work, but does what? Believes, trusts, relies upon God. To him, 
his faith will be accounted as righteousness. So you don't get to heaven by working harder. You get to heaven because you trust in God's work for you alone. And so even here, God is saying, I'm going to introduce a solution for you that you can just simply rely upon to get you back into my presence. And as we mentioned last week in terms of fulfilled prophecy, God went over and above in his, in his desire to communicate to mankind, to predict and to show us through different prophecies that his solution was true and it could be verified. He goes over and above to give us the details, the, the five W's and the one H, so to, so to speak. And he did this by not only foretelling what would happen, but then executing it and making it happen so that what he said could be verified and validated in our thinking. And we could say, you know what? God's trustworthy. He's, we're talking about eternal things here. I'm, I, who am I going to trust my eternity to? How about the God who makes these predictions that come true that he executes and then he makes you another promise that says, if you believe, whosoever believes, will, John three sixteen will not perish. What's that mean? It means you will never have to face the death penalty. Why? God just going to let you off the hook? No, his justice was fully executed on his son 2,000 years ago so that you wouldn't have to face the penalty. Second promise in John three sixteen, but have eternal life. See, this is how you gain eternal life is simply believing in Jesus Christ. And God put all of this together to validate, verify, to persuade, to convince so that when you see these puzzle pieces coming together, you say, that's the solution. <laughs> that's what I'm putting my money on. That's what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in what God said would take care of this. Now, one of the things we see in Genesis 3.15 is it mentions a birth. This is kind of what we're going to get into today's section here. We see that God's solution to mankind's sin problem will be solved through the woman's seed. And, he's, and what's really fascinating about this is that God's solution involves some natural process, birth. Birth is a natural process, and yet he's going to interject his divine interaction into this process as well. And this is why, again, Isaiah 9, 6 is so telling, right? Unto us a child is born. There's our natural processes. Unto us a son is given. There's God's divine interjection into the equation to make this work. And so when we talk about this very birth, this is what's pointed to, referenced over and over in the scriptures to bring our attention what? to exactly the, the right birth that God's talking about. In fact, you, th- you talk about in Genesis 3.15, the birth, to put this in perspective, and I know the world wasn't as populated in those days, but to put it in perspective with today's world population, there are 385,000 babies born per day, 140 million born per year. So how would, what birth, God? I mean, can you narrow that down? I mean, I mean, after the Tower of Babel, I mean, people are spread out everywhere. What, what child are we looking for? What birth? Well, God is going to take, again, his desire to communicate. And he is going to narrow that down for us, not only in lineage, but in the exact location where this child would be born. And it wasn't noon in Georgia, and neither was it San Antonio, Texas. You know, these, these places near and dear to our, it was somewhere in a little town called Bethlehem. So little that when the prophet gives the prophecy, he has to identify which Bethlehem. <laughs> you know, it's not like, uh, it's not like I say, hey, um, I'll meet you in Atlanta. I mean, most of the people in the country know Atlanta, Georgia. 
right? But what if I said Greenville? You ever done any research on Greenville? We used to live in Greenville, Texas. There's a Greenville, Georgia. There's, a, there's cities like that in the United States where you, you'd have to identify what state you're talking about. That's how small Bethlehem was. And so he identifies it with that really hard to pronounce word. Great job, Aldi, by the way, on the pronunciation. I, I always have to rethink that one and go slow. Ephratha. You're like, what in the world is that? There was an identification mark for that little town of Bethlehem in Judah so that you knew which Bethlehem. There wouldn't be any confusion. Imagine if some guy rose up, oh, I was born in Bethlehem too. Now he's like, what, which Bethlehem? Oh, that one in Judah. Okay, never mind. And so now you, you, you've got the Lord narrowing this down. And so again, it, although we don't have complete records, it's, assume, it's easy to assume there's hundreds of millions of births between Adam and Jesus. And so what child, what seed is he talking about? And this is where we get this further clarification. Just join with me as we take a, a hop, skip, and a jump through the Old Testament in Genesis 12. We'll start there. We're going to get your fingers loose for lunch later. Yes, you have to Get loose here. Flip through the scriptures. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and also twenty-two eighteen. What we see about this seed is he is going to be a direct descendant of Abraham. This is, this is where God starts to narrow it down. God selects one man out of the entire Gentile world at the time. No Jew existed before Abraham. He was the start of the Jewish race. Picks him amongst all the Gentiles, and he says, this is where I'm going to start funneling the lineage so that you can recognize who this seed is going to be from Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And then here in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis twenty two eighteen says, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's, he's narrowing it down. Then he goes on, Genesis 26, 4, flip there with me. He's going to now repeat this promise to one of Abraham's sons. Now, Abraham had many sons. In fact, we're going to look at a genealogy chart here in a section, in a second. But this is the son by whom the lineage would now go forward. It was to his son Isaac. And this seed would be through Isaac's lineage, not Ishmael. Remember Ishmael through the birth uh, with Hagar. But then Abraham also got married to a woman named Keturah and had these other sons that are mentioned here. It wouldn't be them either. It would be Isaac. How do we know that? Genesis 26, 4. Again, God's heart and desire to communicate these things so that we would know. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And notice this, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So again, Abraham, now to Isaac. And we know the next guy we could guess, right? Genesis 28, 14, he repeats the same promise to Jacob. This is significant because he would, not, it would, he would not continue the seed through Esau, who was his twin brother, and not only his twin brother, but he came out first. He should have been the guy, right? He should have been the guy, but it wasn't him. It was going to be through Jacob's lineage, Genesis 28, 14. 
says this, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so you see this continuity starting out with the patriarchs of the family. Now, some of you are going to love this next slide and multiple slides after, and some of you are going to hate it. And I don't know which ones will be who. But um, I want to just show you genealogy here, and I'm going to try to move quick so you don't get bored, and I I get it. I'm with you, all right? So I'm going to try to move this quick, only bring up pertinent details so that you can kind of follow it along. Some of you might be frustrated because you can't see it as well, and I'm with you too. I was looking at it from the back. So anyways, there's my disclaimer. Let's kind of move forward. So here here we've got, starting at Adam and Eve, and you're going to notice in this genealogy, you've got a cross. Um, drawn into some people's chest, okay? And that, what that's going to do is going to follow the lineage of the Messiah. That's what we're following there. And so you can see here, you, you know, we're going to get to a point where you don't recognize any name, but there you go. Adam and Eve, good start. Um, obviously, we know what happened to Abel. He, he didn't have any offspring. Cain had, you know, uh, wife and kids. But, but that lineage was now going to go through Seth. And now as we look at Seth, he had a son named Enosh. And, and again, you can follow all this in Genesis all the way. So you might recognize Enoch, right? Enoch is the one who never died, walked with God. Methuselah, right? The oldest man who, who ever lived, who died before his daddy did. Remember that? Um, no, okay. So uh, that's always a good, nice turtle. Who's the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his daddy did? Methuselah, you know, impressed somebody at a Christmas party this year. Um, Anyways, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then we recognize Noah, okay? We see this, this lineage, and this is what we can see from the scriptures. And then we've got descendants of Noah. We've got Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth, and obviously the, the lineage went through Shem, Arphaxid, and then we, we, we've got the descendants of Arphaxid all the way down. Um, if you know any of these, I'm really impressed by your biblical knowledge, but these are, um, you can trace this in the Old Testament. And then you've got all the way down, you probably start maybe recognizing Nahor, possibly, Terah, and then Abram, okay? And we see this lineage, and then this is what we just read in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, that this would be the lineage. And so that helps us also trace the lineage back up, all right? So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see descendants of Abraham, and we saw that they was going to go through Isaac, and then Isaac was going to go through Jacob. And so... Once we get to Jacob, uh, we're going to skip kind of a little bit, but we've got Jacob on through Judah, not through the first uh, sons, but through Judah, and then we'll kind of pick up there in a second. We're going to jump ahead to Isaiah, so flip your fingers up to Isaiah, and that wasn't too painful, right? Not yet. Isaiah 11, 1. If you like that, there's more to come. <laughs> there's some more genealogy coming. But Isaiah 11.1, just skipping ahead to Jesse, where it, it says a rod or a shoot is said to come forth from the stem or the trunk of Jesse. The branch shall grow out of Jesse's roots. And this, again, this is all birth terminology. This is descendant terminology. Look at Isaiah 11.1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And, and what we're going to see is, is in conjunction with Isaiah 9 and some other passages that we'll look at here in a second, the, the birth of this seed, the identity of this seed is always tied to ruling, 
in some capacity. In fact, jump down to verse 4. But with righteousness, speaking of this seed of Jesse, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And then jump down to verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand uh, as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Now there is so much there to unpack. Like I feel almost like pastoral malpractice by not unpacking it. But, I, but let me just tell you one thing that's interesting. Verse one, is, is he uh, a branch growing out of Jesse's roots or is he the root of Jesse? Look at verse 10 and verse one. And if your answer is both, you passed. This is, again, little things that, that God is revealing through his word that are convincing us and persuading us that he has this whole plan put together. He's not going to lose track of details. Oh, yeah, Jesus is supposed to be divine, too. I should have put that in there. No, it's there. It's all there. So in one verse, he's talking about growing out of Jesse's roots. And then in verse 10, it's talking about Jesse coming out of his root. He's the root. And it's both. And that's, again, that Isaiah 9, 6 concept. A child is born, a son is given, fully God, fully man. How does God do it? I don't know, but it's incredible. May he be praised. And may he be glorified for his solution. So jumping forward from Jesse... In Psalm 132, this also just a a fascinating passage. He's going to repeat the promise now to David. He's going to show us that this lineage is going to go through David, the son of Jesse, and he's going to further elaborate on the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant. He's pulling all these things together, and now he's going to tie this seed in again to, to reigning in the future. And this all goes with the Davidic covenant Again, going back to the Abrahamic covenant, going back and uh, eventually to Genesis 3.15. It's all put together. So look at verses 11 through 12 in Psalm 132. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Verse 12, if your sons will keep my covenant, my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. And so you see this connection between David's seed toward reigning as a ruler in the future, ruling over a government. And so we view this in terms of putting the Bible together. This is, he's talking about the millennial kingdom, reign of Jesus Christ. This is what he's communicating here. But notice in verse 11, this is, this is something I'm just going to put in your brain here, food for thought. Notice in verse 11, notice how the promise is unconditional and, and the fulfillment is certain. Read that again in verse 11, just kind of look at it, glance at it from your eyes. He's sworn it in truth. He won't turn from it. I will set up, right? It's, it's unconditional. Then look at verse 12. There, there seems to be a condition to this. And you think, how could it be both? Well, look at verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. So there's an unconditional aspect that that way in the future, this promised seed is going to reign. Then there's this conditional aspect that says in between, that might not be the case all the time. Why is it 
Why does it seem to be two different things? Well, we're going to look at that in a second, but I'm just going to tell you, you can trust God. This is not a contradiction. God knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. He takes all of this into account when he gives his word. I mean, it's just exciting to see these kind of things. And again, from this passage uh, in Isaiah 9, 6, it's just confirming everything that we're seeing. A child is born in verse 6, and if you remember verse 7, the child will sit on the throne of David and rule his kingdom. That was all there in Isaiah 9, 6 as well. So let's go back to the genealogy. We dropped off here uh, with Judah. We're going to get to Jesse and David here. And so again, I, I don't expect you to know these names. Um, but, but anyways, jumping up here, Boaz, you know, you know the book of Ruth, that, that was her husband, Obed, Jesse, and then we see David where the, the lineage of Christ goes forward. And, um, and then David is here and uh, he was busy uh, with his family uh, growth there, apparently. So thankfully, Solomon's wasn't up here. We wouldn't be able to fit it on the PowerPoint. But um, anyways, David's here. Now, what do you notice about David's lineage that hasn't been true of any other lineage so far? You notice the cross and two different men? You say that, what's going on there? Okay. This explains why Psalm 132 had, a, had an unconditional and a conditional. We're going to put this together here in a second. And by the way, the only way we would know this per se is based on what the Old Testament said and then based on how the New Testament authors basically dealt with this situation that we find in the Old Testament. So first, most of us think in terms of the lineage of Solomon, okay, um, as the lineage of the Messiah. And so again, just working our way through here, we see this lineage passed all the way here, all the way to... Joseph, okay, the, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, all the way to Joseph. And what this would provide for a Jewish person is a, is a legal line, uh, a legal lineage, okay, a legal lineage. Even if, even if a man had a, had a son that was not his biological son, if he was his son, he would still qualify for any legal privileges as a son. So this is the legal lineage, but we have a problem here, sticking just with Solomon and we got a problem because of this guy, Jehoiah Kin, Jehoiah Chin. Maybe that's a, a better way to say it, just to kind of keep him uh, separate from his, his father, Jehoiakim. It kind of gets uh, a little confusing. But join me in Jeremiah really quickly. This is just a, a fascinating aspect of the, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and of the Messiah in general. And again, it's just going to show us that God knows what he's doing. He knows how to put this stuff together. He's incredible. But in Jeremiah chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 24. What we're going to see is that God, due to the idolatry of Jehoiachin, who's, by the way, his nickname or another name used of him in scriptures was uh, Kaniah. That's how Jeremiah is going to refer um, to him, is Kaniah. But we're going to see that through his idolatry, God specifically said he's not qualified to sit on the throne and nor will any of his sons sit on the throne. And so we're, like, we're looking at this genealogy and we're like, wow, if that's true, then none of these guys are qualified and thus that would disqualify Jesus Christ. And some people make that, that argument. But let's go to Jeremiah 22, verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, and that's our Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off and I will give you into the hand of those who seek 
your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Um, let's jump down to verse 28. Is this man Coniah, a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. And you think, wow, that lineage is cut off. And if that's how you read the passage, you're right. That lineage was cut off. Here's what's incredible about the word of God. We also see Nathan as, as a lineage. Now, uh, you see Nathan up here and we follow, we trace him down and we can you know, see all these names that we don't recognize. But what changes on the back end of this lineage? For the first time in a lineage, it, it, typically it's this guy begot this guy, this guy begot this guy. And now on the back end of the lineage from Nathan, who do we have there at the end of the lineage? We've got Mary. We've got Mary passing along the lineage. And so what we see between Joseph and Mary is simply this. Joseph has the legal uh, line, if you will, legal lineage from David. We record his, his genealogy is recorded in Matthew 1. And this is what's incredible. The Spirit of God inspired Luke to record the genealogy of Mary. And guess what? She too is a direct descendant of King David. She too is a direct descendant. And so now we see the biological line. So we've got the legal line covered in, Mary, in, in Jesus's stepfather. We've got the biological bloodline covered in the lineage of Mary. And I am just blown away by the way the word of God records this. In fact, you've got to see it. If you've never seen it, I think you'll be greatly encouraged. Go to Matthew chapter one and let's look. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing. Okay, we've already looked at it in, in picture form. But what you're going to see in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, is you're going to see Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah. And you're going to just see this consistent, this guy begot this guy, this guy begot this guy, this guy begot this guy. So what you expect when you get to verse 16 is for it to read, Jacob begot Joseph and Joseph begot Jesus. That's what you expect to read. But what you don't read there and what's recorded here is incredible uh, because you don't read that, that, that direct, uh, you know, the repetition of what's going on the, the previous 15 verses. Notice how Matthew records this. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see the shift there? See, he introduces Mary into the genealogy there. Um, Joseph, and what's Joseph's role there? The father of Jesus Christ? No, he's the husband of Mary. And Jesus came from who? Both of them or her? Her. We can see it there in the genealogy. Flip over to Luke, where we've got the genealogy of Mary. And, you know, it's interesting because Luke doesn't, doesn't actually say that this is... Um, Mary's genealogy. He doesn't tell us, but what's really interesting is he, he traces it from the genealogy that we had shown earlier. You can see that it's coming out of Nathan, David's son, not, not Solomon. 
But look at verse 23 and notice again how the Spirit of God encourages him to record this. He says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age being, now leave out the parentheses for a second, but the parentheses is key, but just leave it out. Being the son of Joseph, but then notice the parentheses, as was supposed. What's he indicating there? He's not the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. Why was it supposed? Because, because the average person said virgin birth, psh, you know, you had some bad chili last night. You know, that doesn't work out that way. You know, I've learned about that in science all my life. It just doesn't happen that way, right? But, he's, but look at how the word of God records that as was supposed. And so now you've got this lineage of this seed that cannot be debated even though the Pharisees are doing everything in their power through the life of Jesus Christ to discredit him as a potential Messiah, they never go to the temple and pull out the genealogy and say, look, can't be him. They never say that because they can't. He's covered on both sides, both legally through his stepfather, who was a direct descendant of David, or biologically through the bloodline of his mother. You see how amazing God is in in terms of just putting this together. He's got it all figured out. And so now we've got this way to track the lineage of the child. We've got a way to to recognize, but there's still a lot of descendants of David. Where will this seed be born? And that brings us to Micah 5.2. And join me in Micah 5.2, which we read um, earlier during the the lighting of the candle. But Micah 5.2 says, but But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Micah recorded this prophecy around 700 BC, 700 years before it happened, just to kind of put that in perspective. And so this is a future prediction. If we were able to you know, spend time in the whole passage of Micah. It's a future prediction of this one uh, ruler that was coming who would be faithful to the Lord in contrast to the leaders of Israel up until that point of time. He would actually feed God's flock. He would usher in peace. That's all millennial kingdom language that he's using there. In fact, if we look through that passage, we would, we would see that as well. And so this is, the, again, the connection that he's making, and now he's giving an exact location where one can expect this child to be born. And I mentioned this earlier, but Ephrathah was just an old name used of this area of of the Bethlehem and Judah. There were multiple Bethlehems in the promised land. And so this was exactly identified as the place. And um, he says, you are little in in the phrase. And again, it's an insignificant town. And when you think about the Messiah being born, you'd think he'd be born like with, with strobe lights on him in, in Jerusalem. He would be born in the biggest city in the world, in the biggest hospital in the world, with the biggest named doctor. I mean, you would, you would really do it up, put a parade together so that you know, but God does it differently. God does it, he still does it in grand style, but it's just different than the way men would typically think. And so um, the, the prophet Micah, via the word of the Lord, recognizes this, though you are little, Immediately, you can see the human reaction like, oh, no, not Bethlehem in Judah. That place is just a, a little village, you know, off the, the beaten path. I mean, that's, that's nowhere. I mean, he, if God's going to do it right, he's got to do it in Jerusalem. 
You know, I, he's got to do it like, like right on the temple mount, you know, like he would, uh, humankind would think that way. And yet he's going to do it somewhere little. Now, this is such a specific prophecy, so specific. Hard to miss, right? You would think if you were a Jew scouring the Old Testament, trying to understand when your Messiah would come, how he would come, where he would be born. And you wonder, did they know it or were they ignorant of it? Man, it's at this point, you wish you could rewrite history. I wish they were just ignorant of it. But they knew it. They knew it and they disregarded it. In fact, in Matthew 2, let's jump over there. Matthew 2, 1 through 6 We see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. Let me get my religious experts in here who know the word of God to tell me where this child would be born. Do they even hesitate? No, they know exactly where he's gonna be born. Verse five, so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Not only did they know it, they quoted the verse. (laughs) They quoted the verse, they knew it, and yet they missed it. They still knew it, but they missed it. And so they interpreted this verse the exact way that you want to interpret the Bible, which is literally, not allegorically. Well, Bethlehem really means, no, Bethlehem of Ephrathah met Bethlehem in Judea. That's how they interpreted it. They, they, they understood that it was going to be a true birth, a biological birth in this specific city. And again, when we put that together, just consider God's strong desire to communicate all this to us so we could know. He, he brings the lineage down. He tells where, he tells when from the prophecy in Daniel 9. I mean, he puts this all together for it. And then not only that, he orchestrates the circumstances needed to pull this off. Because it wasn't like God said, you know, I like Mary, I picked her. And he, he, he sends Gabriel to her and she, he's like, oh man, she's in Nazareth. How am I gonna get her to get birth in Bethlehem? It wasn't like God was caught off guard. He knew how to get her to Bethlehem. And this is what's incredible about the story because the census took place coincidentally, right? I mean, we, I mean, we joke about that, but God is now working behind the scenes and the circumstances to get this, this young woman who is, who is due at any moment to get her to Bethlehem so that she would give birth the exact time that her baby was due. And I'm sure that, that ride or walk helped with labor, because what do they tell women who, who are having trouble getting birth? Get out and walk and do something, right? It helps kind of bring on labor pains. But anyway, she was ready when she got to Bethlehem, and now she's in perfect position. And so it's just a remarkable thing. Why Bethlehem? That's where David was from. That's where he was born. That's where his ancestors were from. He grew up in those fields shepherding the sheep, just like we read about, we will read about in, in future messages with the shepherds. And so some skeptics have thought, well, this story is just way too convenient, right? She needs to be born in Bethlehem. And so, uh, you know, Christians have created this story that there was a census and then that got her there, et cetera, et cetera. And what, you, what it makes you ask is, did these types of censuses really happen? And they did. 
They did. Not only did this one happen, as recorded in history, but um, I've got a, a writing from another census that happened around the same century. And I just, I've got the writing here, so I'll read it. Gaius uh, Vibrius Maximus, prefect of Egypt, seeing that the time has come for the house-to-house census, it is necessary to compel all those who for any cause whatsoever are residing out of their provinces to return to their own homes, that they may be both carried out the regular order of the census and may also attend diligently to the cultivation of their allotments. Now, why would a, why would a government require a census? Well, why, did, why does our government do a census? Is it just to kind of put together cool statistics? You can know, you know who's moving in your neighborhood, what's the annual income? No, largely, I mean, if you're, especially if you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> they want to get all their tax money, right? I mean, that's kind of the deal. I want to know who's out there, who's of age to be taxed. They want to know what's going on. Um, now, I'm not going to accuse the United States of that. I don't have direct proof. But I, but I do have direct proof in this age. That's exactly, and I'm trying to be diplomatic there. Um, but I do have, we do have direct proof. That's why they did it. They wanted to know. They wanted to make sure they're getting, they're squeezing the exact amount of money out of people that they can get. And that was one of the reasons for the census. We go back to Micah 5.2, and we get this, this further identity of the seed. And these are the, these little nuggets that, that God just puts in these Old Testament prophecies. Just incredible. But he says, after he tells them where he's going to be born, he says, yet out of you, even though you're little, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old from everlasting. And you see this one to be ruler. Again, it's talking about this child who would be born would one day rule. Again, tying to the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 3.15. It's all just coming back and, and in line with one another. But we also learn uh, something about the uniqueness of this birth. And it's given to us in two different descriptions. And it's a form of parallelism in the Hebrew. In other words, both phrases, although they seem different, they're describing the same thing. It's like a, a way to describe the same thing from a different angle. And that first phrase, he says, is whose goings forth are from old. I like that, but it's, it doesn't quite give the, the, the kick, I guess, that the original does because one Hebrew scholar translated it this way, before the sun rose. The idea is that, that this ruler who was gonna be born in Bethlehem existed before the sun was even created. <laughs> puts it into perspective, right? This, the sun was created on the fourth day of creation, but this ruler who would be born in Bethlehem actually existed before that. Now, does that fit with the scriptural identification of Jesus Christ who, who created all things, who holds all things together, who spoke the world into existence? Yeah, that's exactly who it fits. That's exactly who we're talking about. And then that second phrase says, from everlasting, in other words, this ruler that's, that's born would have no beginning. But if he's born, how does he have no beginning? Isn't birth the start? You know, you start to see these, these things together. But again, the son preexisted the, the time that he was born in Bethlehem. He, he existed from eternity. He never had a beginning. And again, remember Isaiah 9, 6, the verse tells us the child was born, the son was given, his name would be called all of these adjectives, mighty God, father of eternity, right? And so all of this coming together. And so as we move to the New Testament, 
And we see that the New Testament begins to put these puzzle pieces together for us. And it, as if, you know, if, if you couldn't do it from just the Old Testament alone, which I believe you can based on progressive revelation, but, but even with what's revealed in the New Testament, God starts putting these things together for us in an effort to communicate his plan. In fact, flip with me to Luke chapter one. And I just want you to, to see the message of Gabriel. And we'll look um, at this passage in more detail when we get to the angels and their role in the backstory. But Luke 1, 26 through 33, let me read that and then we'll work our way through it. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph to, of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. He goes to Mary, who is a virgin, who would, he's about to tell her is going to give birth to a son. And you see the direct connection to Isaiah 7, 14 and Isaiah 9, 6. Virgin will conceive, she'll give birth to a son. A child is born, a son is given. You see this connection here. Keep going, verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so in verse 31, Mary would call his name Jesus, which means Savior. Mary would call his name Jesus, which means Savior, which takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the one who would deliver or save mankind from the destroyer and the penalty of sin. Verse 32, we find out that this son will be great. He will be called the son of the highest, meaning that this son given, this child born has a divine Origin. Isn't that what we just looked at in Micah 5 2? He was before the Son. His going force were from everlasting. He never had a beginning. Isaiah 9 6, right? All of those descriptions. Mighty God, the Father of eternity, etc. All of this being brought together for us by the angel. And then carrying on through verse 33, we also see that this Son, tying back to this, this lineage in the seed to David, he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. Again, Davidic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. It's coming together in just an incredible puzzle that God has pieced together for us, not leaving anything to chance. Matthew 2.1, also we read that earlier, told us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The very prophecy of Micah 5.2 fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then Luke 2.1-7, through 7, which is often read during the Christmas story, gives us the circumstances behind how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem, right? That census that took them there. So going back to Galatians 4.4, God had, when the fulfillment of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. And this is exactly what we're looking at this morning, that this exact point in human history, this exact place on earth, Bethlehem, God introduced his plan to the world. Introduced it because the birth of Jesus Christ without the death of Jesus Christ is just a, an incredible birth. But the very fact that he was born the way he was, that 
qualified him to live the type of life that he did that further qualified him to be the substitute sacrifice for each one of us so that we would not have to face the death penalty ourselves. And this is the, the reason that we celebrate his coming. This is why he's a notable person who did a notable thing, which was recorded in a notable event in human history. And just remember this, as we, as we look at this, as we see the fulfillment of God's plan, God planned it in Genesis 3.15. Just remember this and be convinced of this. God's only plan was his only son. That's his, that was his only plan. He, he didn't have a backup plan. Jesus was his only plan. And praise God, Jesus did exactly what he was sent to do. And he did it in exactly the right way, totally accepted by God the Father. How can we be convinced of that? Because of something else that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. The Messiah would suffer and die and he would rise again. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for your plan. I thank you for the way you communicate it, that we can literally just trace it through your word, that it's not just a discombobulated group of stories and factoids put together, that it actually fits together, that you know what you're doing from beginning to end. And Lord, may that just breed and encourage confidence in those who are listening this morning, who are seeing this, this trace in your word that we can, we can just trace out and track out, that that would just, just breed confidence in them this morning, that they can indeed not only trust you alone for their eternal salvation, but they can trust you for the day-to-day things that happen in life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.